صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Good morning, Rob. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm a little bit frustrated. And I, the reason I say that is that uh, Melbourne has been across the world for, you know, riots and police brutality. All of these things have been happening. All of these people at these protests, if they only knew what the Israeli Defence Force does to the Palestinians on a daily basis, this is nothing what we're seeing here. And I just wish more people would look further out and see what's happening Yes, our police are doing the wrong thing. Absolutely, I agree with that. But it's nothing to what we've seen to the Palestinians. And it's just been frustrating, man. I just wanted to get that out. Well, you're right. You know, these people who are freedom marchers and they're fighting for our freedoms and liberty. I don't think I've ever seen any of them at an invasion day rally or at a refugee rally or at a May Day protest. Rob, we're joined by one of our very favourite guests. Absolutely. Stuart Rees, Order of Australia Medal, Professor Emeritus, University of Sydney, and the inaugural recipient of the Jerusalem of Quds Peace Prize. Good morning, Stuart. Hi, Nasser. Hi, Robert. Do you wear your medal? Because I'd wear it everywhere. <laughs> no, no, no. no. That, that's why we would never win an Order of Australia, Robert. Yeah, exactly. Because, <laughs> because we wear it everywhere. Now, Stuart, we've got you on because things are moving very, very fast in Australia. The Israel lobby, the Zionist lobby has been moving at a rate of knots to beggar belief, and they've really capitalised on this time. They've managed somehow to get Vic Al-Hadaf, you know, a renowned pro-Israel Zionist lobbyist appointed to the board of SBS. There's been a special committee on listing Hamas and its military wing both as terrorists. Interestingly, they only heard from Israel lobbyists like Colin Rubenstein and all of Vic Al-Hadaf's mates. And absurdly, in the past couple of days, we've found out that in some sort of sneaky deal, the Israel lobby has managed to insert the IHRA into the New South Wales Labor Party. And what, what's that, NASA, just for our listeners? And the International Holocaust Remembrance Association definition of anti-Semitism, which in and of itself, the definition is innocuous. The challenge is the working examples that are appended to it that inform how you can decide who is an anti-Semite. And seven of the 11 examples mention Israel. Stuart, why don't you take us through, I know you've written a little bit about the IHRA and how it doesn't, doesn't actually meet what it needs to do and there are better alternatives. Well, the IHRA definition is really, got, in some ways, it's got nothing to do with anti-Semitism. It's a, it's a very deliberate attempt to ensure that um, Israel's abuses of human rights are, are, can't be criticised. In other words, it's a protection uh, for for Israel. That's that's the purpose of the document. I mean, it's regarded as, in the words of an Israeli professor of international law, stifling the politics of liberation. And yet, 
it's used as as a used as a um, kind of worldwide statement of anti-Semitism, and it's got it, it has in it a phrase about not being allowed to criticize Israel unless you also simultaneously criticize the human rights abuses by other countries. It's what one Jewish critic says is what aboutism. He says it's intellectually absurd and morally indefensible. Is there any other country that's afforded this protection? Just about every other country has been bullied into submitting. The European Union's accepted it. The numerous American states have, have, have not only accepted it, but tried to to put it into law to make it a criminal offence to not support the IHRA definition. But there's no other country that's afforded this protection, is there? This is a one-off for Israel. Oh, I see what you mean. I'm sorry. No, I don't think yeah. so. No, it's the exceptionalism with which Israel has been treated. That's what has to be overcome. If it's about Israel, they cannot be held accountable. They can act with impunity and we shouldn't be able to criticise them. I mean, your point, Robert, is a good one. There's, there is no other country that's given that protection. The challenge is the, the conflation between Judaism and Israel, because anti-Semitism yeah. is real. And one of the 11 examples is holding all Jews responsible for the actions of Israel is anti-Semitic. And I don't have a problem with that. It's not all Jews' fault that some rabid Zionists are killing Palestinians in prison in, in Gaza. Uh, absolutely. So we should differentiate between real anti-Semitism and what they're trying to do here. It minimises sure. real anti-Semitism, doesn't it? Correct. I mean, the value of the Jerusalem Declaration on anti-Semitism, which was written by 200 Jewish scholars, they were so appalled by the slovenly, mediocre, ineffective nature of the IHRA definition that they wrote the Jerusalem Declaration. And their point is that, of course, anti-Semitism is a huge problem, but so is Islamophobia, so is homophobia, so are all sorts of other ingrained prejudices. And that's what we should be addressing, not treating Israel as as always the only victim. And that's the that's the thrust of the Jerusalem Declaration. And the recent, very significant, in my view, Sydney statement on anti-Palestinianism says, well, look at the way the Palestinians are being treated. You can have members of the Knesset standing up at regular intervals saying that Palestinian mothers and children should be eliminated, and uh, they get away with it. You have a current Prime Minister of Israel, Naftali Bennett, boasting that he's killed lots of Palestinians, he's proud of it, and what is wrong with that? Well, if anybody was to even whisper that sort of attitude about Jewish people, there would be hell to pay around the globe. But because it's not people, it's not Jewish citizens of Israel that are being talked about, it's, regard, it's treated as of no consequence, even in the highest echelons of Australian politics. This exceptionalism, and we'll move towards what happened in the New South Wales Labor Party conference that was held over Zoom in a day. This exceptionalism, in fact, could be <clears throat> fodder for the anti-Semites. I mean, we've got the Anti-Discrimination Act. We've got all sorts of protections in Australian law today that protect individuals. You know, there, there's an exceptionalism being played here. We've got a special definition just for Jewish people. Do we need a special definition for transphobia, for Islamophobia, etc.? The document, this IHRA, is really a very dangerous document. It's been, it's been weaponized 
to stifle, basically to stifle free speech. You can see that across American campuses. You can see it in uh, across France. And now, because the Zionist Federation of Australia thinks it's synonymous with the coalition government, it can't, it can't seem to think that there's any distinction between what they think and what the government should think, then we'll have the same intolerance foisted on, on this country. One of the things we talk about, the stifling of debate, and we might have a chance to talk about John Lyon's new essay, his booklet there, Stuart. One of the challenges is the debate on Israel within Israel is so much more advanced than it is here. Basil Smotrich, the member of Knesset, who said to Palestinian members of the Knesset, you don't belong here. The only reason you're here is because Ben-Gurion didn't finish the job. He can call for another Nakba, another ethnic cleansing, a massacre of Palestinians. But he can say that stuff in Israel, not reported here. If he said anything like that here or replaced any of his language with Jew instead of Palestinian or Jew instead of Arab, you'd be vanquished. Well, of course, Lyon's point is that the the mainstream media are, are frightened to report what that character Modric just said. That, that they self-censor. That in a way, um, I had that experience with the article I wrote in the past few days, because I think you know that, that in the first draft of the article, I identified many of the culprits, many of the small cabal who secretly and deceitfully engineered this outcome at the conference, but was advised, I think probably correctly, that at this point I shouldn't name names, that it would be too dangerous to name names. In other words, the issue would become whether I was being fair to Zionist supporters, not the deceit at, at a major political conference. Mm-hmm. That self was dealing, dealing with what we're talking about really requires investigative journalists with some courage, but also backed by the resources of a major organisation which I, I personally don't have. I mean, I'm, I'm an individual, uh, John Menadieu's platform, the newspaper, journal, Pearl's Irritations, is very brave, but doesn't have the resources to take them on. So we need The Guardian or something like that to pursue this issue over months and months and months. But just one last example. The fact that one of the major supporters of the Zionist Federation, who is also an enthusiastic, supporter of the Labour Party, is a registered lobbyist for an Israeli arms manufacturer. So that complete contradiction in a so-called transparent open democracy uh, should be uh, identified. It should be identified, it should be challenged, not the right course of actions. Stuart, why don't you take us through the Machiavellian machinations that were put into play to see this, the IHRA, insidiously adopted? Yeah, okay, well, look, it's about deceit. I mean, I originally called my assessment, democracy by deceit. Okay, here's a one-day conference, 800 delegates apparently, conducted by Zoom, everything to be compressed into one day. Because of a forthcoming federal election, there's a general agreement not to air too much controversy because that might be at the expense of the leader, Anthony Albanese's reputation or or election chances. So that uh, a motion, one motion, by the South Enfield branch, of which certain people are members, concerned the adoption, a proposal to adopt the IHRA definition. But it was lodged in in a section called Australia and the World. And that was the section in which it was agreed 
that if there was controversy, such as 30 other motions that condemned the racist apartheid policies of Israel, they shouldn't be debated at that conference. They would be held over. They would be respected, but held over. It wouldn't be an issue on which there would be deliberation or vote. One of the characters um, in this um, piece of deceit deliberately lifted the Enfield Party's motion about IHRA and stuck it in what is known as the Social Justice Committee Affairs with allegedly innocuous issues that people would all agree with about indigenous disadvantage, about the the non-existence of services for people with disability. And that was meant to be a job lot, which would just go through with on the nod without anybody knowing. And that the 11th hour, or it might have been at the 10th hour, I'm not sure, that IHRA proposal was lodged in that committee and a group of maybe six or seven people, and they won't all acknowledge who was there, passed it through. So then and they were clearly in close alliance with Jewish News because Jewish News almost knew about it, um, knew about the decision before anybody else did, because the Jewish news by the Monday, the 11th, reports on a decision made on the evening of Saturday the 9th. And they boasted that the Australian Labour, the the New South Wales branch of the the Australian Labour Party had passed the IHRA definition. That's criminal. As I said in the first paragraph of the article, that came as a monumental surprise to the vast majority of the people at the conference who knew nothing about it. And I understand that there's a division, uh, was it Labour for Palestine have put together a document and it circulated to the delegates asking for a recall or a revote on this. Yeah, they want, well, they want the, the merits of the IHRA definition considered along with along with consideration of the statement on anti-Palestinianism, along with the consideration of the Jerusalem Declaration, right? But the issue for me is why wouldn't there be a rescind motion? Mm. How can you operate in a political party which needs trust? Everybody needs trust to operate. Even in the world of complete lies generated by Trump and company, you still need trust. Well, if a major decision was passed on the basis of a carefully crafted deceit, it seems to me that that should be rescinded. It should be regarded as null and void. So at the subsequent conference, somebody needs to have the guts and sense of principle to get up and say, this was a piece of massive deceit. I move that the motion be rescinded and no longer adopted. The the reaction of people in the Labour Party is that, well, There's a a balancing act between the right and the left and um, the left, even the left, don't want to harm Anthony Albanese. I said, well, can you please drop these adjectives right and left? They get in the way of the analysis of the basic principles of universal human rights. Please use that language. Don't give me a ping pong match between the left and the right. Let me hear the language about universal human rights. There's no other, in domestic and foreign policy terms, I do not know of any other basis on which to generate your arguments. You must stop shielding behind this silly, in some ways out of date adjectives, the left or the right. So, it's not about protecting anti Albanese. It's about it's about a vision of the future of, of a sense of social justice for everybody. If you don't if you don't do that, it means that 
every decision on every piece of policy and every feature of life can be crafted by the massive deceit of the people with the most influence. I mean, you can't you can't even run the Melbourne City Council in that way, no. can you? No, I wouldn't have thought so, Stuart. Sadly, we've moved as a society so far away from that egalitarian expectation that as a community we will judge ourselves by our weakest and not how well our best are doing. We've moved way, way away from that sort of sense. Stuart, back to Palestine, the things are getting more and more grim there. Gaza entering its 15th year of siege, the occupation entrenched, Palestinian leadership divided. Increasingly, though, in Australia, we're seeing, and whether it's in the Labor Party adopting at three now national and state conferences, the recognition of Palestine as a part of their platform. John Lyons' first book, Balcony Over Jerusalem, and now with his second book. Do you think we're entering a space where we might get the conversation on Palestine more in the open light, and this is why the Israel lobby is going this hard, this insidiously. I mean, we we have to. I mean, there's no, we can't give up. No, we can't have the, we can't be overcome by the fatalism that nothing can be done. Once you do that, um, you might as well be you might as well be locked down intellectually and morally for the rest of your days. We have to keep the momentum going. After all, we live in, we don't live in a police state in Australia. We, I mean, how are people of Myanmar managing? How are the Palestinians managing? How are the West Papuans managing? How are the Tamils of Sri Lanka surviving? And you know, how are the protesters in um, in Belarus? You know, I've no. just been writing about that. How are they? How are they managing under under a absolutely brutal dictatorship so i like i say look to everybody courage courage is good for you take a risk say what be clear about the human rights of the people of palestine because a dose of courage every day after meals is good for you it's good for you well the the good thing about listing all of those indigenous struggles for self-determination Stuart, is you've ticked off one of the concerns of the ihra in that you are a spending equal time on other causes, not just Israel, so you're not an anti-Semite. <laughs> sure, yeah, I mean, um, all those issues. I mean, I've spent the last 48 hours trying to get a doctor out of, the, out of Afghanistan. So, but, the, but for me, one of the a test case of, you see, if I had cancer and went to a physician, he or she would want to know where's the primary site? Where does it all start? And in international relations, since, in a way, since Balfour, the primary site has been the failure to deal fairly with the Palestinian, the the human rights of the people of Palestine. That's okay. There are other issues, Tibet, Sri Lanka, Myanmar, and so on. But if we use that language, certain in the narrative, then some people begin to wake up in a way they haven't done before. I, I mean, I'm struggling at the moment to generate a bit of interest in the area in which I live about climate change and I'm inept I don't really know how to use social media very well it does occur to me that over Palestine people's understanding of Palestine in 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 Australia that social media offers an opportunity for advocacy that I don't think of I mean if I write an article maybe be a hundred people read it maybe 200 see it but if you or Robert were to do some sort of fantastic sketch on TikTok, it might reach 100,000 people. So I, I don't want to trivialise it. I'm just trying to deal with social media opportunities. Stuart, you're, you're 100% right. And to, to give some meat around that thesis, the protests that we had in May after the most recent Israeli massacre into Gaza, 
the protests were bigger than ever before and overwhelmingly younger. And they were younger because that citizen journalism, those TikTok videos, Instagram pictures have educated, polarised a generation that we, uh, because to those kids, Stuart, you and I are the same, we haven't been able to communicate to them. No. It's also allowed the Palestinians to get their things out as well, though, as well. You know, it hasn't been, uh, they can't be censored too much they can put it onto tiktok as well and we can see exactly what's happening almost real time yeah i mean what's the what in your judgment both of you what's the balance between you know social media and zoom versus people like the three of us returning to gaza returning to the west bank returning to the camps you know sitting down with han nashrawi and others or doing what i've done before which is going going to have actual meetings with hamas to say you know why can't you guys establish, can't you see that the division between you only plays into the hands uh, of the Israeli government? So what's the balance in your judgment between our, our having some reassurance from media, social media initiatives versus the conventional face-to-face negotiations? I think they'd work together, Stuart, because you go face-to-face and you use social media to get it out there. So hand in hand, it's perfect. I think in an you know in an egalitarian world where democracy, the foundations of the democracy were sound, polling couldn't be rigged. There wasn't intimidation at polling booths, etc. Information to citizens, the fourth estate, the importance of the fourth estate, and you know social media is part of the fourth estate now, informs the public so they can make informed decisions. Now, in a normal sense, I mean, if we were to have free and fair and open elections in Palestine today, there's no question, neither Hamas nor Fatah would get 10% of the votes because they failed so badly. The challenge is when we talk about it in that sense, in a sense of Palestine, Stuart, is that, you know, we can't divide the fact that what we have a situation there, a boiler pot situation, Hamas just wants to be in power. It's not leadership. Because with power comes privilege, with power comes money, comes opportunity, etc. So I think when when they did win those elections, you know, 14, 15 years ago, when the Jimmy Carter Peace Centre said, International Centre for Peace said, these were the most open, free and fair elections that they'd ever monitored, that this in fact was the will of the Palestinian people. It should be said that they ended up with around 45% of the votes that party that ran politicians uh, that ran under the Hamas ticket, many of them weren't Hamas members. They were technocrats and autocrats, uh, but they ran under that banner that immediately after the Palestinians exercised their democratic rights, the Americans and the Israelis stamped down, closed down Gaza and said, you voted for the wrong people. We don't accept democracy. This is after... They've set the whole of the Middle East alight, bringing democracy to the savages. So, Sure. I mean, the a priority of an Australian government should be to advocate the end of the siege of Gaza. I mean, that cruelty, that cruelty has gone on for 15 years or, no, or so now. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the problems of communication is not just with the general public, but even with your local politicians. Here. I go to speak, uh, you know, I'm a pretty busy person, but I go to speak to the Labour member in the constituency I live in. And she's a very nice lady. But it, all this, all the sort of things we're talking about are water off a duck's back. Yeah. I mean, I'd have to, I have to explain 
I have to explain what the issues are. So there's a problem even of communicating with them. I mean, if you look at the case of Julian Assange, oh. it's taken it's taken 15 years to get almost 30 federal politicians to say enough is enough. 15 years to get 30 out of, I don't know, 200 plus. And, and we should say from the perspective of journalism, that they've yet to find anything that he said that has been wrong or a lie. No, I mean, he's a very significant citizen. He's done the world an enormous service. Yeah. But because of the revenge motives of the United States and the compliance of the, the so-called British justice system and the cowardice, the, see, I, I, I can't comprehend the cowardice of federal Australia. I don't know why they think that you can run your life by licking your finger and sticking it in the air and seeing which way the wind is blowing. Well, I'm glad you said sticking it in the air, Stuart. I thought you were going somewhere else. Um, <laughs> I was a little concerned too. The evidence, Stuart, is in the AUKUS deal, the sub deal that we might never, I mean, we might be Chinese by the time these nuclear subs get here. You know, China might have already come and taken us over. All, all the way through to what's happening with Bernard Collery and Witness K and the Timor-Leste case. I mean... We're in a police state, we just don't even know it. Sure, sure. The the notion of surveillance and compliance. I mean, for me, as you probably heard me on this before, I mean, if I go to her to talk with Hamas, as I have done with in, in the company of um, the amazing Richard Falk, mm-hmm. um, to say, well, can you guys think of another way of throwing your weight around other than, than bullying people? Yeah. I mean, you'd say that, you say the same thing, to men who commit domestic violence. You know, I've said it in in different countries. Can you guys think of another way to deal with what you think is a conflict? And and because there's this massive illiteracy about thinking of any other way, and the same point applies to the the Israelis, uh, then we have perpetual perpetual conflict and we have the perpetual pandemic of domestic violence. Domestic violence multiplied by the power of 10 gives you, you know, the bombing of Gaza. And, and you're right, when you talk about that from a funding perspective, from a government attention perspective, you know, a woman dies at the hands of her domestic partner every three or four days. And you sure. take that out of, from, from today back to September 11, when the war on terror began, thousands of women have died at the hands of their partners. Sure. Um, and, and we're, you know, if you include the Bali bombings as a, an attack on Australians, you know, less than 100 Australians have died from sure, terrorism. Sure, sure. We've only got a little bit of time to go, Stuart, and it's so great for you to join us. I've heard about Sally Rooney's new book, and she has chosen not to, or she's abided by the call from the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions Committee to boycott the State of Israel. The Israelis and the Israeli lobby have made, of course, she's anti-Semitic for doing so, because she doesn't want to publish her book in Israel. They've said that, you know, she doesn't want to publish it in Hebrew. That makes her an anti-Semite. No, look, look, I'm sorry. Um, Anti-Semite is to chuck out to a a knee-jerk reaction to undue criticism to call people anti-Semite. It's just intellectually lazy. I will not tolerate that for one minute. You know, I mean, that's, uh, um, I don't get attacked these days because I've drawn a line in the sand and said, look, that's, you're just, that's just a lazy that's a lazy adjective. It's a sort of abuse that the little boy in the playground uses to, to his opponents in order to deride them and bully them. 
Now, of course, that doesn't mean to say that anti-Semitism isn't serious, but to but to use it as as a sort of catch-all phrase to stifle criticism has to stop. And we we shouldn't we shouldn't tolerate it. We should name it for what it is. I mean, if somebody produced that sort of argument for me in an essay, I'd say, you know, one out of ten, do it again. <laughs> one out of ten. We'll finish with this quote that she um, that Sally Rooney had. She said. She's not going to publish with an Israeli company that does not publicly distance itself from apartheid and support the UN stipulated rights of the Palestinian people. So a very principled stand along with um, Ben and Jerry's ice cream. I think increasingly um, we're seeing people understand the need to adopt the boycott and divestment and sanctions campaign to support the Palestinians to isolate Israel, to challenge its legitimacy as a state, because uh, it needs to comply with international law and uh, and afford Palestinians equal rights. Sure. No, no, no. And um, the sooner we, sooner I get to Melbourne so that you can buy me a drink, uh, you two, um, <laughs> then we can... <laughs> Stuart, we, we really look forward to it. Again, thanks so much. Stuart Rees, Order of Australia Medal, Emerson Professor at University of Sydney and the recipient of the Jerusalem... Quotes Peace Prize, and you should get his recent book, Cruelty and Humanity, or Cruelty or Humanity. Thanks so much, yeah. Stuart. Okay, lovely, lovely to talk to you. You have, a, you have a great day. See you again soon. That was the amazing Emeritus Professor Stuart Rees, Order of Australia Medal, and inaugural winner of the Al Quds Jerusalem Peace Prize. Thanks for listening. Be sure to share the show. I'll put some links to Stuart's articles in the podcast. Tell your friends, and remember, There's never been a better time for a free Palestine.